So, with regards to the tactics that Satan uses against us, what we're up against and how to win, it's not necessarily that Satan follows, in, that evil follows some sort of protocol, uh, you know, that the attack is first against our mind, and if that doesn't work, our body, and then what we talk about tonight, um, you know, evil's going to take any access that we give as believers into our life, evil's gladly going to take that. Um, but evil's also going to operate uh, in the path of least resistance, which is why um, you know in your life you're prone to certain sins, you're prone to certain weaknesses. Uh, everyone has areas of their life where they're more vulnerable than other areas, and those are going to be the places where you're going to be primarily attacked because it's less effort. And so that's where Satan's going to go, straight at your weakest point. But as believers, we have to remember that the evil one can't bind the strong man's house unless he lets him in. We, we, we chalk the door open by the things that we do that create opportunity for trouble in our lives. So, uh, your first blank tonight, let's get started, is we need to set the stage here tonight by making some foundational truths. God has granted every human being the ability and freedom to choose. And we call this the will. We have a will. And we talk about it around here all the time. That we understand what the Bible says about uh, God's sovereignty and our free will and how those two things exist in perfect harmony like the two tracks of a train track. They don't counter each other out. Uh, there's no problem with God being sovereign and in control and us having free will. The only way the Scripture would make any sense is to understand that we would never have uh, the ability to have intimacy with God if we didn't have freedom and we know God doesn't push himself on us. And so what we, what we know about God is that he in his perfect design has granted us or given us or created us with volition. We have this volition within us to determine uh, it's our internal decision-making uh, process. You make decisions every day, hundreds of, if not thousands of times a day, you make decisions from little decisions to big decisions. And you have a process by which you make those decisions. And you make decisions differently than other people. And that's one of the challenges of getting married is initially when you get married, you figure out that you're married to somebody that doesn't make decisions the way you do. And you have to adapt yourself to a new way of decision making. But you have a way of making decisions. And that way is in very much uh, predicated on your will or your volition, the tendencies about who you are and the way you were raised and so on and so forth. And all of those details about you, have you've developed this method. So these decisions are based upon our inclinations and or our biases that have shaped us in the past. You see... Sometimes, because of things you've experienced in the past, some of you are more timid. Uh, you 
or you don't make decisions quickly. You're not what we would call a decisive person because you've been burned in the past or made big mistakes in the past, and so you're very tentative and cautious. And then there's other people who are much more, you know, they, they're, they're what we call decisive people, and they are quick to make decisions. And uh, all of that is connected to your will. What is your knee-jerk reaction? What, what are the biases that you have? All of those things play into your will. Now, because of the fall, man's will is inclined away from God and disposed towards self and sin. You see, it wasn't intended to be that way, but because of sin, it is that way. And what you need to understand is that your will, your volition, apart from the Holy Spirit of God will always make decisions based on the flesh. It will always incline itself to itself. Always. Romans chapter 3 verse 10 says, No one seeks after God. No one naturally in their own will or their own volition wakes up and decides, Oh, today would be a good day to... Uh, have a relationship with the God of the universe. It doesn't happen that way because we must have our will intervened with in order to uh, rightly respond. Now, we can't choose against the biases of our will and the bias that we have towards self and sin is a voluntary bias that is not imposed on us by God. You see, God doesn't force us in any direction. And he certainly doesn't force us. He, he's not, God's not the author of our broken will that's bent inwardly. God didn't intend or create us that way initially. Sin did that. And so God doesn't impose that on us. That's the way we are. We make poor decisions. We suffer the consequences of them. God's redemptive plan is designed around fully knowing and understanding that that's how we are. You see, he designed a, a, a redemptive system knowing fully that our wills are broken and that our volition always tends towards ourself, which will lead to consequences because it's the way God created. It's the, it's the order that God made creation work with. So what ends up happening is think about the wisdom of God and the love of God and the way that he created the redemptive process. He knows how we are. We make poor decisions. He doesn't, he doesn't cause us to do that. We're fully capable of doing that. We make poor decisions. We suffer consequences for those poor decisions. Those consequences of poor decisions open us up to the realization that we're incapable of doing things on our own, managing things on our own, which is what God uses to bring us unto himself. And so like I'm always saying that if, uh, if, if we're in here on a Sunday morning, there's 700 people in the room. The only people in the room, if I said, raise your hand if you came to Christ through a time of struggle or difficulty, every hand in the room is going to come up with the exception of a very few people who genuinely came to faith in Christ as a child and it wasn't in the course of struggle or pain or discord or confusion or that 
the rest of all of us, every single person who comes to Christ as an adult, it, it's always that way. No one, no adult gets saved because life is going super great. That's not how it works. God doesn't need to impose that on us. We're experts at doing that, right? Now, if we can't choose against the bias of our will, then our will must change if we're going to live for God. We need our will to be altered. We need it to be changed. Now, because we have freedom, that's the problem. We need our will to change, but we have the freedom to make decisions however we determine that we're going to do that. So we should, for example, love the things of God and the people of God and the places of God. We should love that. But we don't always do that. And we don't have to do that. But we should do that. You see, there's a lot of things that we should do that we don't always do. And so all of this is very important in understanding how, because what's going to happen is you're going to see in a few minutes how Satan uses that against us. And so what God gives us as a blessing or what God uses as a blessing in our life, he will seek to use to harm us. So God's desire is to redeem the will of man to conform the will to the will of God. That's what he wants to do. Now, the Bible tells us that in a multitude of ways. The Bible says, uh, like we talked about this morning in Romans chapter 8, that for those he foreknew, he predestined to conform into the image of his son. So he wants to conform our will. He wants, to, uh, he wants us to, our minds to be renewed. And so if we don't conform to the things of this world, but are transformed by the renewing of our mind, then we can prove what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. What does that mean? We can prove, we can live out, we can exemplify what is the will of God. God's desire is to redeem our will. So your will is determined by your expected outcomes and drives everything that you do. Everything that you do. So the principle to understanding this is to understand in, when it comes to your will, it's a very complex, there's so many different variables that play into it, but at the top of the list, the, what, what you must, if you were going to focus on one thing, you know, if, if, you, if, if you are a person who, who is continually making poor decisions or you love someone or counseling someone who's continually making poor decisions... Step one, my recommendation to you would be to start. Step one would be almost undoubtedly you have a major expectation problem. Expectations play a huge role in our decision making. And if you begin to think about as you go through your day tomorrow and the decisions that you make and think about what your expectations are and how enormous they are in you determining what your decision is going to be. Faulty expectations are one of the most destructive things in a person's life and in a Christian's life for sure. So 
Uh, I'm constantly preaching this in my D group, constantly. It's the why behind the what in our lives. It's the why behind the what. See, this is, where, this is how I unravel expectations in people's lives. Because what, what happens is, is that we have some, uh, you know, we, we have some embedded expectation that is, uh, if, if it's a wrong expectation, it's almost certainly going to be leading us to pain. Because we've expected something that's not happening, and so we're frustrated when the source of our frustration is that we just made something up. As soon as I get involved in your situation, I'm going to say, so who told you that was going to happen? Why are you upset because this didn't go the way you... Well, whose idea was it that it was going to go that way in the first place? Where did you get that idea? That's why you're so frustrated. Well, why did you expect that? What's the, what's the expectation based on? And what we need to do is we need a strong enough why to overcome our what. Now, here's what I mean. Too many people, are, their lives are ripped apart by faulty expectations due to passivity. Passivity is a huge problem in the expectation arena, and it's a, it's, a, it's a swinging the door open for Satan to come in and have a field day in your life. And here's what I mean. If you're doing something, whatever you're doing, it really doesn't matter what it is, but all the spiritual things that you do, I would challenge you to ask yourself this question. Why am I doing this? Why? So I am relentlessly in my D group looking across the table at other men and saying, well, why are you doing that? They tell me, well, you know, here's what's going on at work and here's what I'm doing. And I say, well, why are you doing that? They say, well, here's what's happening with my kids. And so here's what I'm doing. I say, well, why are you doing that? Well, here's what's going on with my wife, and here's what I'm doing. I say, well, why are you doing that? To get them over time to start thinking in terms of don't just do things. Because if you just do things, disaster is going to strike. Why are you doing what you're doing? And when your why is more prominent than your what, your expectations are going to line up because... You're gonna, you have to think through and validate what you're doing. And so it's, it's, don't underestimate the importance of the will in the Christian life. Because believe me, it's your, in, it's your intestinal fortitude. It's what you, it, it motivates your determination. It's what, it's what makes you, your will is what makes you willing to fight for some things and not concerned about other things. It, it's so critical to uh, your direction and what you do. But you can't just let things happen in your life passively. Because Satan has a goal and he's committed to his goal. And it's to get to the will and to control it. What he wants to do is he wants to control your will. 
And boy, when he does, he is going to wreak havoc in your life. Now, there is uh, blatant um, examples of uh, Satan controlling people's will that's on the news all the time. When somebody goes into a school and starts shooting and kills a bunch of people or straps a bomb on their back and walks into a crowded arena and blows himself to smithereens, we can talk about how uh, broken and bent and sin-cursed the world is all day long. But when you blow yourself up, that's unnatural. That's unnatural. I mean, I can rationalize in my mind robbing a bank and convincing myself I'm going to get away with the money and, you know, possibly getting wounded or even killed in the process, but the whole time thinking I'm going to get away with it. But walking into a situation purposely to extinguish other people's lives and knowing that fully in up front that it's going to cost me my own willfully doing that how is that happening now think about it in every single case it doesn't take long for us to uncover some twisted broken backstory about these individuals why is it that they're not happy normal healthy people because that's not a happy, normal, healthy thing to do. So this is why we're warned not to get to be cautious about the things that we involve ourselves in. So if you get involved with a cult, if you get involved with false religion, if you start getting involved with things you ought not do, well, then you've opened the door for Satan to get in and to gain control of your will. And what is he going to do when he gets in control of your will? He's going to twist your will around so that it's your will to strap a bomb on your back and walk into a crowded mall and blow yourself up. That's how that happens. That's 100% demonic in nature. hundred. It fits perfectly every category of demonic activity. So the enemy's primary way to do this is through our mind. The mind is the doorway. And so when we ask ourselves, well, how does, you know, how did this foothold get in somebody's life how did they get mixed up in something that's why we have to be so careful because we we think that something is uh harmless and what happens is is that we open the door we begin to expose ourselves to something now think about how spiritual warfare how we just sort of take for granted things but but really, it's very unique the way it works. You know, um, if, I go, if I go into the hospital and I'm visiting somebody and they're sick and they're contagious and I get some of their germs on me and then I end up not feeling too good, it doesn't create an environment where I want to go back to the hospital more often and get more germs and get more sick. Does it? No. But why is it that if I open my life to 
something immoral that seems small and insignificant in the beginning. Every single person that I've ever counseled with an addiction to pornography, they didn't wake up one day and say, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to start watching porn today. That's not how that happened. They started, they, they started watching inappropriate TV shows, which led to inappropriate movies, which led to... And so isn't it interesting that when you open the door, it, one thing leads to another thing, leads to another thing, until you, it just, as you allow, what is it that's creating this? How come we can't just, how come we can't just go, go to immorality at a level one and stay at a level one? I can name a hundred things that I can be exposed to at a level one and stay at a level one my whole entire life, but immorality is not one. Why? Because Satan's not involved in all those other things. And so that's why you can't do that. Because once what happens is, once you let it in, his agenda is to get control of your will. And if he can get control of your will, then he's going to cause major problems. So, there are many whose will is controlled by their intellect. And this is an attempt to find satisfaction, but it, only, it never results in a changed life. You see, uh, the gathering of information, people who, uh, we, I bring this out because certain segments of Christianity, Baptists being at the top of the list, are notorious for being information gluttons. And so they love to have all this information about uh, theology and all this information about uh, spiritual things, and yet their life shows no fruit of application. What good is the information without application? But what happens is all that information is used to, to navigate or to manipulate your will in order to find satisfaction because you have all this information. So think about all the things you can do with this information. You can rationalize different things. You can create your own, you know, you get all this information so you can create all these new ideas in your head and come up with things that, you know, convince yourself of anything, but it doesn't result in a changed life. Knowledge in and of itself only puffs up and is useless. And the, the enemy that we're talking about tonight has all the knowledge. It's application. And I keep saying this week after week after week. That this material, for you to come and sit and listen and take in this information and not use it, you would be better off staying home. You're bringing more harm on yourself by listening and not using it. You'd be better off at home. It's the truth because you're, you're setting yourself up to have a false sense of security and that's exactly what your enemy wants you to do. You know, committing to know as much as possible about God and yet fail to ever personally know Him. What good is it? It's of no use whatsoever. So the mind is the initial target of the enemy because it's the on-ramp to control our lives. You see, that's where everything begins. 
You know what's true about all of us? We never act on anything that we haven't first thought about. Now, we may not have thought about it long, but we thought about it. You can't act on something without thinking about it. Thinking always precedes action. And so if Satan wants you to act out, in order to get you to act out, he needs you to think wrongly. Because the mind is the on-ramp. It's the beginning place. It's the door. So there are others whose will is controlled by their emotions, which results in a constant change of feelings. So you got the camp of intellectualism. Then you got the emotional group. Now, emotions are given to us by God as a gift, but they were never intended to be a trustworthy guide. You never trust your emotions uh, to be your guide. That is a fiasco on every level. And how do I know that? Because I don't even need to know if you're an emotional basket case to know that's a horrible thing. Because your emotions fluctuate like the weather. I mean, if your decision is predicated on if you do things based on how you feel, you are going to be a walking disaster area. I mean, that clearly will never work. Because you're, think of, I mean, think of how many times a day you're feeling, and think of, think of, if I said that I know somebody and all their decisions are predicated on how they feel, you would think I was talking about a two-year-old because a two-year-old is the only person who would naturally do that. By the time you reach five, you're moving past that. But you've got this whole segment of uh, Christianity, if you will, that's wrapped up in emotionalism. And what they, the reason that it's so dangerous is not, it's not the emotions, it's how the emotions are affecting the will and opening the door for the enemy to use all sorts of things against them. Many belief systems are built on emotional experiences. And so the problem is that they never last because emotions are temporary. They're temporary. You see, if you seek emotions or emotionalism as uh, to authenticate, your spiritual wellness or, the, or your, the, the spiritual authenticity of something that occurred. You see, if, if somebody, you know, came down front and made a profession of faith and was very emotional, if you use their emotion to uh, validate the fact that that must have been a genuine, authentic, uh, repentant heart because they were so emotion, emotional, you're going to be sorely mistaken. That's not what uh, emotions are for. That, that's never been uh, the purpose. See, anyone who bases their spiritual life on how they feel is destined for failure. Destined for failure. Because emotions are a roller coaster. And there's a lot of days that I don't feel like doing things I ought to do. And what does that have to do with it? And there's a lot of days that I feel like doing things that I ought not do. And what does that have to do with it? Okay. 
So if I ate ice cream, every time I felt like eating ice cream, I'd be 750 pounds. That's just the truth. And if every time I walked in a bank and looked in the vault and thought, I'd like to have all that money, pulled a gun out and said, give me the money, well, then I would have been in jail a million times. I mean, it's just, you know, I never feel like driving the speed limit. I don't feel like it. But I more don't feel like getting a ticket. I mean, emotions are absolutely dangerous. Now, God has a desire for our lives that our will will be controlled by the Spirit of God through the Word of God. That's His plan for us. Why? Because... The Word of God is unchanging. You see, He wants our will to be anchored to something. Emotions are not what we... You can't anchor anything to emotions. There's no stability there. Now, and the only way we can have any certainty about anything is based on the Word of God. You see, you can't know the will of God if you don't know the Word of God. So as I said this morning, it explains what we see going on. If, if what we have is only a third of professing evangelicals would even respond, because I'm not, I mean, how many people are responding to something they wish were true that they're not even being genuine in what they're responding? But if only a third of the responders even said that they ever read their Bible on a daily basis, well then, that's all I need to know. The rest of the story is going to be riddled with chaos because if you don't know the Word of God, you have no possible chance at discerning the will of God because the will of God is in the Word of God. And so... God's intention from the beginning was to anchor ourselves that our mind would be renewed by the Word of God and then our lives would prove the good, acceptable, and perfect will of God. That's how that works. So our obedience should be intelligent but should be motivated from a loving heart. In other words, we don't shun intelligence or information or emotion on either end. We just don't allow them to drive us. So what we do, we want to do things in an intelligent, sensible way. And we want to be motivated by love. So when we do something and we ask the question, why are we doing that? Then we want to be able to answer, well, the reason I'm doing that is because I care deeply. I'm, I'm doing this in this way because I care deeply about these people or whatever the case may be. I think the, the illustration that Pastor Matt used here was he said, you know, you wouldn't go pass out. You wouldn't say, well, I want to go pass out tracks to people. So you wouldn't go down and stand in the middle of I-10 and try to pass out tracks. That would not be an intelligent way to pass out tracks, would it? No, it would not be. It would, it would greatly shorten your lifespan. So Jesus says 
that the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with your heart, mind, and strength. Now, Jesus doesn't say to obey God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. He doesn't say that. He says to love God. So that brings up a a whole nother set of questions with regards to our will. Because the heart is the seat of our emotions, the mind is our intellect, and the strength is our will. And so God says that we're to love Him with our emotions and our intellect and our will, our volition, our fortitude, our stamina, our strength. Okay? So we can't allow our will to be controlled solely by our intellect or our emotions. It must be controlled by the strength that comes from the Spirit of God. All of these things have to work in conjunction. So... Our will is what determines our character. Because our will is what determines our decisions. Our decisions is what determines our actions. And our actions are what determines our character. You see, if you say so-and-so has good character, what you're saying is, is that they do the right thing. Isn't that what you're saying? Well, if they do the right, in order to do the right thing, you have to think the right thing. You have to be committed to the right thing. There's a process. You didn't just land at doing the right thing. There's a sequence of events that had to transpire in order for that to happen. And so the will is determining our character. Our character is the window into who we really are on the inside. It's the motivating factor behind all that we do. It's why we do the things that we do. It's what we do when nobody's watching. That's the truth about who we are. Who we are, truthfully, is not who we say we are, who we project ourselves to be, but what we do and who we are and the way we act when no one's looking, when, we, when, when we're not exposed. What do we do? That's the truth of who we are. That's our genuine, real character. And so the Bible would say, uh, let's see. Well, the Bible would say that you do because you are. You do because you are. What do I mean by that? Well, Matthew chapter 7, verse 16, a tree is known by its fruit. How do you know a tree? By its fruit. So how do you know a person? By his actions, by his fruit, by what he bears. Now, what determines that? Well, what he thinks. Well, what determines what he thinks? Well, all of these things surrounding the will are all what's filtering through this information and these emotions and our strength and all this stuff is going on that's working and and it's very complex but it's something we need to we need to have a a handle of understanding on so you may want to you may want to blame circumstances or feelings on other people 
but that's only an excuse. Is that your next blank? I don't know where that slide is, but blaming your circumstances or feelings on other people, that's an excuse. You know the, the conversation that you've had uh, with people, people have had this conversation with you. I have this conversation all the time where I look at somebody and I say, they're just bent about something. And they want me to jump in their sinking ship with them, which I absolutely refuse to do. And I look at them and say, you do realize that you have to allow somebody to make you mad. You're allowing somebody to manage your emotions. You're allowing, I mean, why are you so emotionally invested in this thing? Why do you allow someone to control it? You know, I'm, I'm upset because somebody, you know, said something to me they shouldn't have said. So my question immediately for you is, why did you expect them to say the right thing to you? Wasn't that on your handout from this morning's sermon? Oh, it's because you thought that if you do good, everyone else is going to do good to you. Well, you're a dummy. Because that's dumb. And that's never going to be the case. And so why do you expect that? That's a poor expectation. Chances are the person who said something to you that's wounded you, chances are... Not always, but chances are that's a person of poor character. You should have known that and expected that from a person of poor character. You should have taken the time to analyze their life for five seconds and known that they have poor character. And chances are what comes out of their mouth is going to be something that's going to be of poor character. Because their will has been compromised. And once your will has been compromised, it's going to be a downhill slide from there. So, we're all saved by confessing, I will follow Jesus. Where are we? The enemy wants nothing more than to destroy your character. Is that where we are? Since you are a child of God. So, he wants to destroy your character. Because you're a child of God. I mean, he wants to destroy my uh, technology at the moment. All right, he wants to destroy your character because you're a child of God. That's his motivation. So we, we were saved by confessing, I will follow Jesus. There we go. Bam. And we'll continue to grow by confessing, your will be done. So what does God will for us? He wills for us, for example, to 
love one another, to, to love him, to love one another. But God doesn't command our emotions. Is there anywhere in Scripture where God commands us to, uh, to be happy or to be sad or to... He tells us that we may be happy or be sad, but He doesn't command emotions. But He commands us to love one another. So what does that tell us about love? It is clearly more than an emotion. Love is an action. It's not just an emotion, because if love is an emotion, well then, one minute I may love you, and the next minute I won't love you, and so it's all over the map. But in order for me to consistently love someone, or for me to be able to love God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength, it's got to be more than an emotion. There may be an emotional component to love, but love essentially is, it's an action. So... God wills for us to love one another, and since God doesn't command emotions, love must be a willing. It's a willing. Now, the enemy gives us great insight into this from his own history. The enemy's original sin was a sin of the will. You see there in Isaiah 14, as the prophet Isaiah recounts what what happened with Satan as he fell from heaven. Verse 12, How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son son of dawn. How you are cut down to the ground. You who laid the nations low. Look at the next verse. You said in your heart, I will ascend to the heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of the assembly of the riches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. You see that? I will, I will, I will. That's his. That's the core of his sin over and over and over He's declaring his will over God's will, which is exactly what he wants to happen to us. So as believers, especially in the Gospel of John, we're told over and over and over that the ruler of this world is evil. So as believers, we're simply rebellious residents living in enemy territory, and he will stop at no lengths to capture our will. He wants to capture us. So how does he do this? How does he get into our will? Well, he has some very potent yet tried and true methods of doing so that are as old as humanity and yet remain uh, with time consistently successful. So the enemy is going to, for example, use victories to inflate our ego and to entice us to rebel against God. Now,
The number one weapon used against us with regards to our will is the sin of pride because it's so easy. It's so easy. Now, it's not the only weapon to get to the will, but it's the easiest one. Because pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall. If ultimately what the enemy wants to do is destroy us and cause us to fall, pride is going to be the quickest and easiest way to get us there. And so not only that, pride falls into the category of of ungodliness that is going to most oftentimes go under the radar, right? Well, certainly. What What do we major on and what do we minor on? We major on sins of the flesh. We are very judgmental and very uh, dogmatic about sins of the flesh and are oblivious most of the time to sins of the Spirit. So when it comes to some blatant sin in the flesh, oh, it, you can get people in an uproar in a heartbeat. But what happens when somebody's prideful? We just uh, excuse that away as, well, they're just very confident or they're, they're very gifted or they're sure of themselves. Or, or what about when people are impatient? We even make jokes about our impatience. But patience is a fruit of the Spirit. Impatience is the opposite of that. But you, don't, you, don't, you never heard anybody in a big uproar because somebody was in, somebody's impatient. Which is exactly why Satan loves to get a foothold there. Because it goes right under the radar. Just operate in the spiritual sins and you'll have a field day. The Bible says in 1 Peter chapter 5, Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another. For God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. We know verses like that. He goes on to say, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that you may prosper in time that God may exalt you. But for the most part, that just goes in one ear and out the other. Because the motivation, our will, our volition to obey that is significantly reduced. Why? Because it's non-visible. We're much more prone to concentrate ourselves on things that other people are going to be able to see or know or things that are going to, whatever has the greatest level of humiliation or embarrassment or rejection because we're acceptance-aholics. So anything that's going to cause us to be rejected, we're going to be more conscious of those things. But the Scripture has tons to say about pride, for example, and it's Satan's number one way to control our will and we overlook almost everything the scripture has to say about it because it mostly just goes under the radar the desire of Satan to work in the local church to hinder the ministry and the only way he can do that is through believers who allow pride to slip into their lives you see 
if he can get a, a pastor to uh, begin to think highly of himself and uh, begin to think that you know he's something special, if he can get a Sunday school teacher to believe that his teaching is wonderful or that people would be in trouble if it wasn't for his brilliance, or if he can get somebody to think that you know because they do something, so many other people are dependent on that, or because of the way they serve, that they're so, they're so meaningful in so many people's lives and it begins to puff them up. It doesn't take much. It could be any little thing that you do and pride comes into the equation and then Satan's going to start working through that pride into the life of a believer to get a foothold into their will because what he wants to do is he wants to get into your mind and into your will. He wants to get into your decision-making process. That's what he wants to do. And that's why things that are, uh, that things that, that are, that are in his lanes of operation, you can't just put your foot in and play around and not get sucked into the current. But then there's so many other things where it's not that way because Satan's not involved in those other things. But anywhere he's involved, if you dabble in it, you're going to get sucked right in. I mean, surely I'm not the first person to think about this, right? We just take for granted that there's all these dangerous things that we ought not do because if you do them, it can just turn into a disastrous way of life. But did you ever stop and ask yourself, why is that? There's so many things that you can do that may not be the best thing in the world, but somehow you don't end up, your life doesn't end up destroyed by them. Because Satan's not, not working in those things. Whatever he's working in, you, you stick your pinky toe in it, and he's going to grab a hold of it and try to suck you down it as far as he can. You see, as believers, we have to understand something that we... We're, you know, we're talking about all of these things, but we need to make sure that we understand that saved people and lost people encounter these, all these truths in completely different ways, completely different ways. You see, as a saved person, you cannot under any circumstances in any way, shape or form ever be possessed. That is an impossibility. It can never happen. The spirit of God inhabits your dwelling you are the temple of God, and the enemy can never possess that. But what can he do? He can oppress that. He can oppress it, he just can't possess it. So he's limited to what he can do, but he's going to take whatever he can get. And what is this? But, but think about it. If you're lost and glorifying Satan, then what is his motivation you see, if you're apart from, you see, in salvation, prior to salvation, we were a slave to what? Sin. At salvation, we're now a slave to righteousness. So Satan is not out there attacking people who are slaves to sin. They're slaves to sin. He's attacking you. He's after you because you are a slave to righteousness. He wants to get to you because you are, he wants to oppress you in every way he can. And even when he possesses someone, so evidently, who's obviously not a Christian, 
what is his purpose in possessing them? Well, he wants to destroy whatever he possesses because whatever he possesses is created in the image of God. But what's the motivation? To get to, to use, to possess, to oppress. That's always the motivation. He's trying to thwart the will of God. He's trying to stop or reduce the glory of God in any way that he can. So we need to be very aware of the sneaky, sinister ways that he gets a foothold in our lives. So we need, to, we need to be very careful, especially about pride. We need to know that there are symptoms of pride that we need to be aware of. Okay, number one, fault finding. That's a great evidence that Satan's got a foothold in somebody's life. Somebody who's always pointing out the fault. You see, because what's at the root of that is a person who is quick to identify the speck in someone else's eye when they have a plank in their own, right? That's what fault finders do. So continuously fault finding, that is an obvious indicator. What about a harsh spirit? Now, I'm not the only one who has all these faces in my mind, am I? You don't know anybody who has a harsh spirit, do you? You know that critical person? The minute you see them, you know they're critical. Now, what is a critical harsh spirit? What is is at the root of that? pride. They're masking their deficiencies, their insecurities. They're trying to prop their their insecurities up by beating you down. And that's why they're critical and harsh and short with it doesn't matter what it is all the time. They can, it doesn't matter how big or small the situation is, they're going to react. They're going to overreact and react inappropriately 10 out of 10 times. What about People who have a surface spirituality. They're phonies. They're hypocrites. They're masqueraders. They love to appear spiritual or appear that they have discipline or appear that they have it together. But in reality, they're frauds. They're frauds. They only have discipline or they only care about the appearance when they get credit for it. When nobody's looking and nobody's around, that's when you see the truth. It's all a big charade. It's pride. What about defensiveness? I always... I always relate to defensive people as they're unteachable. They're just defensive about everything. So when you go to them in love, they get defensive. They immediately, you know, start attacking you or, you know, pointing out flaws in everyone else's life. We're not talking about anybody else. We're, I'm trying to have a simple conversation with you. But you're unteachable. 
You see, what's, what's, what is a, the, what's at issue with this defensiveness? It's, a, it's an absolute uh, aversion to accountability. Because a defensive person is what they're doing is they're refusing to be held accountable for anything. And we all need accountability in our life. Number five, neglecting others. And by neglecting, typically the way this manifests itself is uh, because there are people who are only kind to those who benefit them or can repay them or in some way there's some residual reward. And so what they, they neglect the people who genuinely are in need because those people, if you're genuinely in need, you, you don't have anything to offer. So therefore you're neglected. And it is, uh, it's an indication of a person who has got a stronghold of pride. Now, why do, why do we make such a big deal of pride? Because of all the choices that Satan has to to gain control of our will, why is pride the undisputed heavyweight champion of uh, access points to get to your will? What is it that makes pride so special, so useful to the enemy? Well, the reason that Satan uses pride in our lives is to make us independent of God's will. That is the core of the issue. He wants us, he wants to get access to our will to get us to think that we don't have to worry about God's will. We can make our own choices. We're fully capable of making a rational and, and wise choice with regards to this situation. And we have every freedom and right to do so. Who is God to tell me the way I ought to think about something? Well, as believers, we're his offspring. We're his sons and his daughters. He's our father. And as our father, he is the one I mean, that's just as our Father, not to mention as our Creator and as our preeminent Lord and on and on it goes. But as our Father, He is the one who has the right to instruct us and to guide us and to lead us and to mold us and to shape us. But Satan wants to turn us against that. The core of sin is to seek to be independent of God. You see, with pride, whether it's through fault-finding or a harsh critical spirit or surface spirituality or being defensible or unteachable or neglecting others, regardless of how it manifests itself, here's here's where the train is always going. This is where the bus is always headed to the same stop. Self sufficiency. You got this. You can figure this out. You don't need God.
We're not sufficient. We've never been sufficient, nor will we ever be sufficient in this life. In our, I mean, what, what kind of fool would believe that? Well, millions of people would believe that. Untold millions. Think, for example, with me about just the professing evangelicals who have determined in their own minds to formulate their own independent position and feelings about all sorts of very delicate, politically touchy subjects in our culture. They've just decided that they're, you know, they're going to be accepting of certain things and they're going to be open to certain things and, you know, that they just decided that, that God is outdated in his views of certain things. and Huh? Well, sure. And they're not even uh, ashamed of it. If Satan can get you to think... And to act independently of God's will, he can then control your will and your life. That's exactly what he did to Eve in the garden. That's exactly what he did. Once he got her to think independently, he got her to think independently. She acted independently and he had everything he wanted, didn't he? And that's what he wants to do in your life and that's what he wants to do in my life. So what happens is we, we, we get deceived into thinking that we're acting independently, but actually we're not acting independently. We're being deceived. You see, what happens is we're, we're you know how Paul says in the book of Romans that, that uh, whatever, whatever sin we obey, we become the master of that, Right? So when we, when we act independently of God, which is not even correct, it's just the only way I know to say it, well, are we acting independently? No. We're just depending on something else. You see, th this is what I want you to understand. There's only two kingdoms. There's a kingdom of light and a kingdom of darkness. There's not a kingdom of you. There's only two. So either you're acting in accordance with the kingdom of light or you're acting in accordance with the kingdom of darkness. There's no other choices. So if you act independently of the kingdom of light, then who are you, are you acting independently? Not in any way, shape, or form. You're acting under deception. And so you will actually be acting under the rule and the direction of the enemy. That's exactly what's happening. So let's, let's try to make some application about this because I know that of, of these tactics, this is definitely the hardest one to grasp, to sort of feel like you get your arms wrapped around it, you can hold on to it because our will is a, it's a challenging uh, conversation to have. 
Pride is such a stronghold that <clears throat> only something more powerful can defeat it. You see, we in and of ourselves are utterly powerless against pride. We cannot say, what I'm going to do is work on my pride. I'm going to deal with my pride. I'm going to work on trying to be a more humble person. I'm going to... It, that is impossible. That would be like me saying, I'm going to work on becoming shorter. It's impossible. It doesn't work like that. We have no control to do that. We need outside help. We can't address our pride on our own. Because we've been born with a volition that is bent downward. And so it's always, our flesh is always going to take the wrong turn. It's always going to lead us astray. So our only defense as believers is the indwelling of the Spirit of God. See, we need something outside to come inside. And then everything changes. Apart from the Spirit of God... Nothing changes. We have problems. So, let me try to explain to you how sinister this is quickly. So, for example, if you were reading, uh, if you were studying the life of David in the Old Testament, and I said to you, if I said to ten people, so what was David's great sin? Probably nine or ten out of ten are going to say Bathsheba. Now, if you read the Bible, what you're going to find is that when David sinned with Bathsheba, uh, there were great consequences, and it cost people their lives, right? And David said to God, I have sinned against you. Isn't that what he said? But there's another moment in David's life where he said, I have sinned greatly against you, God. And it had nothing to do with Bathsheba. And when might that have been? What are we talking about? We're talking about pride. Remember when David called for the census and numbered the people? How many, how many people died as a result of that? 70,000 people. And when David confessed that sin to God, and remember, there was a 10-month grace period where David could have relented and backed up and didn't, and still, in his pride, progressed forward. And 70,000 people lost their lives, according to that, because of that. And then he went to God and said, God, why, why are innocent sheep dying for my actions? Please let your wrath be upon me, for I have sinned against you greatly. You see? You see, we're all about the sin of lust and the sin of adultery and the sin of fornication. But the sin of pride just goes right on by us. And 70,000 people lost their lives because of that pride. You see? It's sinister and it's sneaky. And we need help. Only God through the Holy Spirit can work in you to control your will and enable you to please God. You see what happens in, in what happens is... Someone makes a profession of faith. Well, initially, we obviously want to believe that they're saved. And we treat them as if they're saved. And we respond to them as if they're saved. But we're, 
you know, we're, we're, we're analyzing the situation. We're going to see if there's fruit. Now, how does fruit come? Because you can, the Bible says you can know the tree by its fruit. Well, how does the fruit come? The fruit comes through actions. Well, how does actions come? Actions comes through thoughts. So the way that you know that a person is saved is because when a person gets saved, the Spirit comes within them and renews and revamps and reestablishes our will, changes our will. We get a new will. Because when we get a new will, then we have new thoughts that leads to new actions that yield to fruit that prove that we're converted. You see? We need a, we need a new will. We need God. That's why God... Jesus says, I'm leaving, but don't worry because I'm going to give you one more valuable than me. And he's going to guide you into all truth. He's going to guide you there. You're not going to wander around and flounder around. You're going to have an internal guide to lead you there. But guess what? I'm not going to unplug or snip the wires to your free volition. I'm going to command you to do things, and I'm going to compel you to do things, but I'm not going to force you to do anything. And so if you want to slam the door shut, it's very simple. You want, you want Satan to be locked out of your life like Fort Knox? Very simple. Obey what you're commanded to do and obey what you're commended to do. Lockdown. But everywhere you exercise your free will to do what you want to do, every time you choose to go left when the Spirit is trying to guide you to go right, you open the door, you're, you're declaring your independence, and you're opening the door for trouble to come in. You see, it's not that complicated. So number one, here's what you do. You consciously and daily surrender your will and desires to the will and desires of God. Now, I'm just going to say the same thing I just said, but in a very succinct and simple way and show you in Scripture how all of this just is very simple. Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself daily. Do you know what that means? Do not declare your independence daily. That's it. Isn't that what that means? Deny yourself. Forgo your volition. Do what you're commanded and do what you're compelled to do. So you ask, whatever you're doing in your life, ask the question, why am I doing this? This is the way you would, you would ask that, that question. You would say, does this accomplish the, my purposes or God's purposes? Okay, number two, intentionally serve others. You know why? It's so simple. Because it's a pride slayer. You see, if you, if you just crush it on number one, you can just check out and go to the house right now. You don't even need to hear the rest of what I'm going to say. Because number two and number three are just like sweep up, mop up, because we can't seem to get number one right. And so where you exercise your volition and allow Satan in, then here's what you do. You intentionally serve others. And what is that? That is a, 
That's, that's a vacuum cleaner for pride in your life. It, it starts rooting around and sucking the pride out of your life. And so where you have exercised your own volition and opened the door for Satan to come in and get a foothold, you, you through serving other people will mop that up. It humbles you. The Bible says in Philippians 2, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others as more significant than yourselves. Ask yourself the question, am I, am I putting others first or am I putting me first? Because what pride does is it feeds on credit. And so I say this all the time. In serving others, what I mean is Christian servanthood. If you're getting acclaim and accolades for it, that's not what I'm talking about. You can just feed your pride that way. But where you're doing something for someone who can do nothing for you in return, that right there will mop the pride up out of your life. It's so good for you and so good for me. And number three, strive for humility. Strive for it. Want it. Desire it. I was talking with a young man the other day who... Uh, feels God's call in his life into ministry. And so he was asking me a million questions about this and about that. And so at the end of the conversation, he said, so if there's one thing that you can tell me that you want me to take away from this conversation, what is it? And I looked at him and I said, be terrified of pride. Be terrified of it. Because it's the root source of all the bad things that Satan wants to do. They're going to come through. It's all going to be connected to pride. Always. Be not conformed to the things of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of our mind. That we might prove what's the good, acceptable, and perfect will of God. That our lives would exemplify what is the good, perfect will of God. So the way that's going to happen is we're going to be a people who abandon our right to independence against God. The goal is not to be independent. The goal is to be utterly dependent. That is the goal. And so one final thing before we end. This is why I am so concerned about our uh, obsession with uh, physical, tangible actions. We, we base things and grade things within, uh, within the church oftentimes on, on what people are doing and the way they're doing it and the, 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 the you know, their busyness. And to the demise of our prayerfulness. Praying people are dependent people. The reason the church languishes like it does is in so many ways connected to its prayerlessness. And the reason we're so prayerless is because we're not dependent. You cannot be a person of prayer and feel self-sufficiency.
You know what I never do? I never pray about things I can easily do myself. I don't pray about walking through a door. I don't pray about opening up a jar or a can. I don't pray about... I can do that. What drives me to prayer is dependence. And what what concerns me about this root of pride is people can be very, very active and fluttering around like a worker bee and appear to be so spiritual. And not praying. And that's a snare. It's a snare. There's no substitute for prayerfulness. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you for your absolute victory.